What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Will Ahmed is the founder and CEO of Whoop which has developed next generation wearable technology for optimizing human performance Whoop Today works with professional athletes across every sports league, college athletes across every conference, Olympians, and the U.S. military. The company also just recently released its first consumer product. Ahmed has raised more than $50 million from top investors and has an active advisory board that consists of some of the world's most notable cardiologists, technologists, marketers, and designers. He wrote the feedback tool, measuring fitness, intensity, and recovery, which sparked the underlying physiology and engineering for his work today. Ahmed was named a 2011 Harvard College Scholar for finishing in the top 10% of his class and a CSA Scholar Athlete. He captained the Harvard men's varsity squash team. Ahmed was recently named Forbes 30 Under 30 and Boston Business Journal 40 Under 40. Hey guys, Sean here. Before we dive into this next episode, I wanted to give you a heads up. I will be doing a solo podcast. Yes, a first for the What Got You There podcast. It's going to be just me behind the microphone answering your questions, talking about things you're interested in. So if you have any questions for me, email them over to info at whatgotyouthere.com, or you can shoot me a DM or tag me on social media, Sean Delaney 23 or What Got You There podcast. Really looking forward to connecting with you guys, letting you guys hear a little bit more about me and my journey. So let's shoot those questions over to info at whatgotyouthere.com or via social. Thanks a lot, guys. Enjoyed this episode. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that your physical fitness is one of the most important aspects of your life. So why do you keep wearing those old workout shorts that are falling apart? Or even worse, when you're at the gym and something smells a little ripe, If that's the case, it's time to turn in those old shorts for a new pair of 10,000 shorts. 10,000 makes it super simple to purchase your new favorite workout apparel. My new favorite short is their distance short, which is super comfortable, lightweight, and perfect for all of my fitness goals. I can say without a doubt that 10,000 shorts are the most comfortable workout shorts I've ever worn. Like myself, 10,000 is obsessed with nailing the fit with the highest quality materials and construction. For the listeners of What Got You There, 10,000 is offering 20% off your first order of shorts. Yes, that's 20% off. 10,000 makes three types of shorts for every way you train. The interval short that's built for versatility and mobility and perfect if you're into a bit of everything. It comes with an optional built-in liner that's the perfect compression without being too tight. It's made from super fine Italian fabrics. Ooh, fancy. So it's not just functional, but more comfortable without losing any support. And you need that support. The foundation short that's built for durability and perfect for anything with barbells, strength training, or even a weekend adventure. The distance short, my personal favorite, it's a super lightweight short, breathable, and built for running. Also with a built-in liner, these shorts fade away while you run. When you check out, make sure you request their one-in-one-out kit. They do this super cool thing when you can send in your old gear you have for recycling and you'll get 10% off your next order. Head to www.10,000.cc forward slash WGYT to receive 20% off your order. And if for some reason you don't love them, they have your back with free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns. Will, welcome to What Got You There. How are you today? Good, man. Thanks for having me. No, of course. You're you're disrupting a lot of things right now. Started your own business. Excellent background. So I'm really excited to dive deep in your story. We were talking a minute ago. You're in Manhattan right now. I know you guys work out of Boston. You're all over the place. So I'm assuming you don't have a typical day. But if you did have a typical day, what's your morning routine like? Well, I try to wake up uh, in the morning around, I would say, 7 a.m. most days. Uh, and, uh, and I'm a big fan of getting as much sleep as you can. So that might be an hour later than, than some people. And, you know, from there, uh, for me, it's, it's, uh, trying to have a little bit of alone time as I start the day. So I'll take a, I'll take a long shower. Um, I'm, I'm really big on cold showers now. I find they kind of snap me into action. Uh, I'll then, uh, probably meditate for about 20 minutes uh, get dressed and, uh, and then I'm off to my office and I actually live really close, uh, to my office. So that's about a 15 second walk, which is also pretty efficient if you're someone who likes to focus on sleep and recovery. 
And, uh, and then from there, I'm, I'm off for the races. Yeah, no, convenience is gonna be key. Your offices are located uh, right across from Fenway Park up in Boston, right? That's correct, yeah, we're right next to the, uh, the stadium. Awesome, a little bit of action there on, a, on the game day, so it's fun for you guys up there. You mentioned the importance of sleep, and we're gonna dive in, into your company, Whoop, and the importance of tracking sleep. Is there anything you do to unwind at night to ensure good night's sleep? You know, it's something that I've definitely uh, tested all sorts of different things on on my body. I mean, w- one thing that uh, we do at Whoop is we measure sleep and recovery very accurately. And that what that allows you to do is it allows you to figure out, okay, what are things that are good for my body or what are things that are less good um, or less effective for my body? And it, mind you, it's not one size fits all. Something that works for me may not work for uh, for other people. Generally speaking, the things that, that do work for almost everyone uh, are having a really dark room, uh, having your bedroom be cold. Uh, and, and when I say cold, I mean, uh, less than, less than 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, a lot of people will, will sleep in, in warmer conditions than that. Uh, and, and as little noise as possible. Like those are just sort of simple ultimatums. Now within that, um, I have, uh, I've gotten into wearing an eye mask, uh, that also helps, uh, reduce light, uh, on your, on your iPhone. You can, uh, turn on a setting that that puts your phone into night shift mode, uh, which I recommend everyone does. It's fairly simple. You just go into settings and, and search for night shift mode. And that will actually allow uh, you to kill all the blue light on your screen for a number of hours before you go to sleep. Uh, so I think that's that's pretty helpful. And, uh, and I try not to do anything uh, too active to my, um, to my eyes before, like right before bed. So I won't watch uh, like TV right before bed, or I won't, um, stare at an iPad or an iPhone. I think generally speaking, uh, those things disrupt your sleep again because of, of blue light. Uh, so overall that those are some of the things that, that I do. No, it's very fascinating hearing your routines. Obviously you're, you're at the center of this in terms of how technology, technology relates to all of this. You mentioned the cold showers. That's something that's come up repeatedly on this podcast. Even guys such as Brian McKenzie out at XPT who have really led the charge in that. Have you been able to track any data with the positive benefits of a cold shower? I mean, I know I do cold showers and the cognitive benefits I believe I feel are pretty tremendous. I'm, I'm curious if any data is tracked on that. Well, I have seen, uh, especially with, I've seen more data related to contrast therapy. So the the challenge with any of this, just to back up for a second, the challenge with any of this, like figuring out what caused what, is that there's so many different factors at at play. So it's very hard for me to isolate solely for cold shower and tell you that uh, everything else was equal. And therefore, whatever happened to my physiology before taking cold showers and after, has has now you know clearly indicates that that the cold showers are either good or bad. What I can tell you though is that the times when I do uh, a more uh, direct contrast therapy. So contrast therapy is like where you're going from a hot environment to a cold environment to a hot environment, cold environment. I have seen uh, pretty clear data for me at least personally that shows that that's something that's good for my body. Now you have to balance it properly. So like you'll sit in a sauna for ten minutes and then. Um, and then I'll take a freezing cold shower and then I'll go back to the sauna and then I'll take a freezing cold shower. And I've started doing that uh, probably in the last three months. And I would say I've seen my overall baseline, my baseline data. So things like heart rate variability, resting heart rate, um, my average heart rate throughout the day, how fast it takes me to fall asleep. Those are things that I've seen benefit uh, the, the day of and the day after I do that. Very interesting. I, I wanna know though about some non-negotiables. Is there something, a, a few key things that you make sure you do every single day, no matter what? I try to meditate almost every day uh, because I find it really centers me. I mean, so I, I founded Whoop about six years ago, and um, and it, it was really my first job. And so I was learning a lot on the fly. And I got to a point maybe two or three years into the business where I just felt a little overwhelmed. Uh, actually a little is probably an understatement. I felt totally overwhelmed. And so I was looking for ways to, uh, you know, center myself and, uh, and I came across transcendental meditation. I took a course, a four day course, which I recommend to everyone. 
and uh, and I learned how to meditate. And I started doing it uh, twice a day for 20 minutes every day. And now I I would say I would say most of the time I only do it once a day and first thing in the morning. But it just uh, I, I find that it's so useful. It, it's like a superpower, honestly. I can't recommend it enough. It it definitely decreases your stress levels, but on a much more holistic level, I think it it it, uh, it gives you this lens into things that you don't even realize you should be thinking about. I'm always amazed by what what sort of ideas come to my mind while I'm meditating, or oh, I forgot about this or that, or I should reach out to this person. Things that you know are just sitting in your subconscious seem to bubble up, uh, at least for me when I meditate and. Uh, and so it's been a total life changer and, and I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, I've never done TM. Based on what you just said though, about finding those white spaces and different things, I love having ideas like that. So maybe this is something I need to look into. I'm curious though, you said you took a four day course. What leads you to having no meditation background and then diving all in on a four day course? Was it a conversation you had or were you just so stressed out in your current environment you needed to do something drastic? Well, I think that, in general, I when I when I go into something new, uh, whether it's learning a new activity or a new sport or or really anything for that matter, I just try to dive as deep as I can go, as fast as I can go. So that might say more about me, just generally speaking, that I went and took a four day course. Uh, but I figured if I was going to learn it, I needed I needed to really commit to it because at the time I didn't really think of myself as someone who would actually be a committed meditator. It sounded a little woo-woo to me, you know. It didn't. It didn't sort sort of jive with my personality, and uh, and maybe that was just you know uh, naive of me to think. But I, I figured, okay, if I commit to taking this four day class and spending, I forget what it was like, eight hundred or nine hundred dollars. Uh, th- then all of a sudden, there's like a major sunk cost associated with with this. So it's going to make me more likely, I think, to keep doing it over time. And that largely ended up being true. I couldn't flake in the first week because I was like, all right, well, I spent all this money and I went to this class, like I got to do it. You mentioned your learning process. Is that something you've put a lot of time and thought around and really understanding how you learn best? It's a good question. You know, I think that, uh, I think that one thing that schools, good schools can teach you is how to learn. And, uh, and that's something I feel like I, I, I picked up at Harvard. I picked up at St. Paul's, I even picked up at Greenvale, which was my middle school. And, uh, and my, my mom especially was always a big, uh, you know, a big advocate, uh, for me to, to do homework and read and, and like understand material. And so I think that I, I got, um, if there was anything I got good at academically, it was figuring out how to grasp something quickly. Like I was probably going to spend less time on homework than uh, most of my classmates, but I I felt that I could uh, get to kind of the key, the key three things, so to speak, very quickly, and uh, and then figure out where to go from there. So I, I would say that's that's probably uh, my point of view on learning is is try to go deep quickly and then try to uh, surface surface what are the you know, the three most important things that, that you can then leverage. You mentioned your time as a kid. What's a sentence your mom would have used to describe you at that time? Um, well, hopefully not pain in the ass, but, uh, <laughs> no, I, I think she would have said, uh, um, uh, I think she would have said, you know, Will, Will is a, uh, a young driven, uh, a young driven kid who's, who's probably too active. I, I played a ton of sports too when I was, you know, 10 years old. I probably played a dozen sports. And so uh, she was constantly taking me from from one sport to the next. Yeah, I want to get into that mindset. You mentioned young driven. I'm also impressed how you were able to articulate your thinking and learning process at a young age. Were you aware of that at the time or is it just from looking back, you've realized that's how you best performed? Are you talking about founding Whoop? Or are you talking about like my childhood? No, your childhood. It seems like you were talking about that you understood you could grasp things quick from a young age. Did you understand that at the time or were you just able to do it? And then looking back on it, you've realized that that you could see things other people weren't. Well, I I think I, I, think I learned, uh, ha- again, I think I learned how to get to the root uh, of something very quickly. 
and I um, and I was often very comfortable showing up to class unprepared. If uh, if that sounds if that makes any sense at all, because I would I would go to class and I would listen to different arguments that people were making, and then I would build my own argument off of their arguments. And I imagine in hindsight that was sort of uh, you know frustrating for my classmates or or uh, even sort of um, out of line for my teachers, but. Uh, but in the process, I, I learned how to how to uh, think on my feet pretty quickly, and again, how to try to get to the the core root of what um, what mattered. Sometimes, ironically, being unprepared can be a good uh, a good way to to learn in itself uh, because it forces you to figure out uh, what you need to know as fast as possible. No, that's so interesting. You mentioned Harvard. How did you end up going to Harvard, and what was that decision like? Well, I um, I was playing squash at St. Paul's, and I had gotten to be pretty good at, at squash, and uh, I got to know the coaches at Harvard, and so uh, Harvard was interested in in, um, in recruiting me to play squash uh, in college, and uh, separately, I was looking at um, a couple other schools like Williams and uh, and Princeton. Princeton's where my mom went, uh, that I think would have ended up being more of an academic experience. I may not have played, uh, played sports, um, at Princeton, for example. And, um, and I ultimately got into the, those are the three schools that I was deciding between. And I decided ultimately that, um, and I thought all three were really great schools. I decided ultimately that I wanted to have, uh, an athletic experience for four more years as part of, uh, as part of my college experience. And so that was probably the major deciding factor was that I still wanted to play squash in, in college. You ended up being elected a captain for the squash team there. How did you garner that accomplishment? Was it something that your teammates selected you for or was it a coach's decision? Uh, everyone on the team uh, votes at the end of the year on uh, on who they want uh, to elect captain. And yeah, it was, it was, a, pretty, uh, it was a pretty humbling uh, moment for me. I, I was definitely proud of it. And, you know, it became one of the better experiences I've actually had in my life because I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was one of the better players on the team. Uh, you know, I was over the course of my time at Harvard, I played between six and as high as 12 on the, on the lineup. And so, uh, you know, and the team kept getting progressively better, uh, as I was getting older on the team. And so by my, my senior year, you know, I was like around nine or 10 on the lineup. And, uh, and yet I had to motivate the, you know, sophomores and freshmen who were actually better than me at the sport. And so it's an interesting dynamic where you're not one of the best players on a team, but uh, everyone's looking up to you because you're captain. You know, often what happens is you're captain and you're the best player on the team or, you know, one of the best players on the team. So that was an interesting dynamic for me to I think to really learn how do you, what are different ways you can earn credibility as a leader beyond, uh, beyond just, uh, being a really talented member of a team, you know, what are other things that you can do, uh, to, to earn that respect? You've done a great job really setting the context for the listeners, understanding your knowledge, your decision-making, your leadership qualities. You mentioned you have to earn credibility as a leader. So how important was that leadership role at Harvard now running a business such as Whoop? Well, it was, uh, I think for, for me, it definitely gave me more um, courage as a leader. I, I'd been fortunate in that most of the organizations I had been a part of, I had uh, played some leadership role. I was a captain of three different teams when I was in high school. Um, I was even president of a final club while I was at while I was at Harvard, along with being captain of of the squash team. So I'd gotten familiar with with um, you know the concept of setting out goals and inspiring people, and and then also figuring out what's the right balance between. Uh, you know, being a member of the group versus trying to run the group and and sort of the discipline and things that go with that. And and uh, and so I think all of those experiences compounded on one another. I think, you know, you, you, you only get better uh, at leading through leading, in my opinion. I think it's a hard it's a hard thing to watch and therefore learn. You know, you really have to, to learn, uh, uh, learn as you're doing it. 
And uh, and I think being a founder or being a CEO is largely the same thing. I think it's very hard to learn how to be a founder uh, or learn how to be an entrepreneur without actually doing it. So from that standpoint, all these past experiences that I'm describing, you know, I wouldn't say necessarily prepared me squarely to be an entrepreneur, but I think they gave me the confidence to pursue the opportunity of being an entrepreneur. You know, for a lot of founders and entrepreneurs, especially the ones I meet with, I think there's a big leap uh, in in you know deciding, okay, I'm not gonna uh, I'm not gonna keep getting this uh, nice paycheck from ex boss. I'm gonna go out on my own and start something. And I think that that's an area where a lot of people get tripped up and actually never get out of the gates. And so that's probably, if I look back on it, what some of these leadership experiences did for me is they they made me more comfortable. Uh, they made me more comfortable starting something in the first place. Now, the actual, uh, you know, actions of being an entrepreneur and running a business, I think a lot of that was a new experience in that of its own. So we talked a lot about you. I want to dive into Whoop now. First, can you set the context of what it is exactly Whoop does, and then we'll dive into how you created it? So our mission at Whoop is really to unlock human performance. Uh, we believe that every individual has an inner potential that you can tap into if you uh, better understand their bodies. And um, I got into this space because I was always into sports and exercises, as we were talking about. And as a college athlete at Harvard, I felt like I didn't really know what I was doing while I was training. So I was someone who used to overtrain. Other athletes get injured. They misinterpret fitness peaks, don't necessarily understand the importance of recovery or sleep. So I got very interested in this idea of how you could uh, better understand the human body. And while I was at Harvard, I actually read something like 500 medical papers and wrote a really long paper myself around how I thought you could continuously understand the body. So, you know, back to what we were talking about early on, you know, how do you identify, how do you go deep on something and then pull it all together and identify a few ways to go forwards. Like the the three things for me that I did from all that research was that the key to understanding your body was to measure strain and recovery and sleep. Uh, and especially for the lens of anyone who is putting stress on their body, that was the key lens. And then within each of those categories, there's a ton of data that you need to collect. But at a high level, I was like, okay, if we can measure strain, so that's levels of stress or activity or exercise, that'll be really, really important. If we can measure recovery, then we'll be able to actually tell you how much stress you should put on your body or how prepared your body is for strain, okay? And then lastly, if we can measure sleep, that will give us information to inform how you recover, right? What, what can you actually do to recover more effectively? And, uh, and so that, that was really the lens that uh, we got excited about early on. And when I say we, uh, I'm also including John Capilupo, who was one of my co-founders and is our chief technology officer, and really Nikolai, who uh, is a product development engineer and uh, and also helped found the company. And the three of us had started working out of the Harvard Innovation Lab with this goal of creating technology that could measure strain and recovery and sleep. And so that is what Whoop does today. We build uh, wearable technology. It's a membership. Uh, the hardware comes for free. And then you get really, really high-level analytics on your body to understand, again, how much stress you're putting on your body, how recovered your body is, and how much sleep you need. So do you guys view yourself as a hardware company or a data company? Much more so a data company. I mean, the hardware is really uh, a drone, so to speak, to just get the data uh, that we need to, to understand you. And, you know, again, back to our, our membership it's uh, it's as low as uh, 18 bucks a month now, and uh, well, 24 bucks a month if if you're buying it online. 18 bucks a month if you're an existing member and and you uh, and you get a a gift card. And you know what what we've seen is that the the members really like this idea of okay, I'm going to get new data every day. I'm going to get new reports. I'm going to be part of a community. Oh, and by the way, this hardware is included in it, right? So. I think that's one of the fundamental things that we wanted to change in the industry was let's think more about your data and how we can optimize you. And the hardware is almost something that you want to just disappear in the equation. And over time, it largely will. Like it's going to keep getting smaller and smarter and it'll live throughout your body. 
yeah, you mentioned that hardware disappearing. What do you think it's going to look like in 10 years? Is it going to be a chip that's implanted in you? We've done some research in that area. Um, I can't say that much more about about the chip in the body. I think there are there are some limitations to it uh, today, but I think that you know over time it's inevitable that sensors are just going to keep getting smaller and smarter, uh, especially our sensor. And then it's a question though of what do you do with all that information? And I, I'm proud that I I think our platform does a good job summarizing all this information. I like to say that the more data you collect, really the less data you want to show to a user. You know, it's not helpful to have a thousand different data points on a screen. You don't know what to do with it. So I think we've done a good job effectively layering information. So for example, I could tell you, you know, Sean, you've got an 85% recovery today. It's green. And you're like, wow, great. I'm ready to go. And then you say, well, actually, how did you know that? And you, you kind of dig deeper. And then you, you all of a sudden you're looking at, oh, here's my resting heart rate while I was sleeping. Here's my heart rate variability that's trending upwards. Uh, oh, I got eight and a half hours of sleep last night and it was high quality sleep and I got a lot of REM and slow wave sleep, right? You start to peel back the onion. But at first glance, we're not throwing all that at you. Uh, we're just telling you, hey, you've got a high recovery. So that's the idea where you want to show information, I think, in layers and give people the opportunity to have a quick glance or to go deep. No, that's fascinating. And I definitely think that helps the users out. I'm very interested in, you mentioned the, the color context and say this morning I woke up and my color was red, that maybe I shouldn't train too hard. How do you know when to go against what the data is showing and just really go to the pain cave and push yourself to the limits? I, I'm just thinking for myself this morning, I woke up, I had a ton of sleep last night because I was absolutely dead. I felt horrible this morning, but I absolutely dominated my workout this morning. And I'm, I'm thinking if I'm tracking it, I probably wouldn't have pushed too hard. How do you know when to push those limits? Well, a lot of it comes back to your goals. So if you are, let's say, a college athlete, right? We have thousands of college athletes on Whoop. If you're a college athlete and you have a game on Saturday and, you know, today is Thursday and you've got a red recovery, like, no, you should not, you know, push through and like overdo it right? You want to start getting your body to recover in preparation for Saturday. Now, if it's the off season and, uh, and you know, you don't have any upcoming match and maybe you're working on just off season training and you want to get fitter, it can be okay to overtrain your body or overreach, uh, which is effectively where you're taking on more strain than your body is recovered. So on whoop, right? Like we give you a recovery from zero to hundred percent. Maybe you've got a, a low recovery or in the thirties or the twenties. And, um, and from a strain standpoint, we measure strain from zero to 21. So the higher you are on that scale, uh, the more stress you're ultimately putting on your body. What we recommend is that as you have a lower recovery, you have a lower strain level. And as you have a higher recovery, you then take on higher strain. So normally we'd say if you have a 20 or 30% recovery to do something like an eight or a 10 strain on whoop, uh, you know, there may be cases again where, uh, that's not possible. So you have a game today and like, you have to show up, right. Or you've been training for this, uh, marathon and today's the day like, okay, yeah, go get it. Uh, but if you can control it, we recommend trying to match, uh, that recovery with that strain. Now there's exceptions in that, in that, like I just mentioned, where you might want for like a week to actually intentionally overstress your body and then have, go through a longer recovery cycle. Most people aren't operating on uh, time horizons like that. Most people, you know, want to be ready for tomorrow or two days later. So we, you know, the idea of mapping strain with recovery makes sense. No, thanks. Thanks for adding clarity to that. And that was probably me just being a bonehead. And in two days, I'm not going to be recovered at all. I'm going to feel terrible. So I, I probably <laughs> I should have been listening to my body there. So, I mean, you mentioned that whoop, what you guys do, you work with some of the greatest athletes in the world. And we're going to get into that in a minute. But for the average person out there, maybe working a nine to five, they just want to stay fit, stay active. How do they best implement this into their lives? Well, you know, I think that we're all dealing with just a, a plethora of different things that are affecting our bodies. There's psychological stresses, there's physical stresses that may include exercise. Um, there's uh, all kinds of different things that we're, we're doing with our diets, uh, how much alcohol we drink, 
you know, and then there's this whole concept of sleep. Are we getting enough sleep? When do we go to bed? When do we wake up? How regular are those things? And what I would say is that Whoop does a good job simplifying all that stuff and giving you a few easy numbers to understand that can help you improve. And, you know, every day on Whoop, you wake up in the morning with this concept of a recovery score. And that recovery score is telling you how much stress to put on your body. And then over the course of the day, you're going to accumulate strain and you'll be able to check in with the app and look at, oh, gosh, uh, you know, I've had a low strain, but I have a high recovery. Oh, I'm going to go do that that fitness class tonight with uh, with my friend. Or the opposite, right? Oh, it looks like I've been stressed out at work today. I had a lower recovery than I should have li- would have liked this morning. Maybe I'll skip that class, and I'm not going to feel bad about it because it's actually going to help my body recover. Uh, and then in the evening, we actually tell you how much sleep you need before you go to bed to wake up optimized for the next day. And I think that's one of the biggest biggest things that that our members get out of Whoop is just really understanding their sleep for the first time ever. And it's kind of this eureka moment, I think, when you first start monitoring your sleep and you've never monitored it before, because it just makes you realize there's this third of your life that's been invisible to you. It's like a black box. And now you can start to peel back the onion and say, okay, how can I make that third of my life more productive? How can I optimize it? And uh, and that that can be kind of a magical moment. Yeah, sleep's one of those funny things. It's, it seemed to go by the wayside, and then recently it's getting a lot more attention. You mentioned one-third of your life you spend doing that, so I'm sure the listeners piqued their interest right there. Whoop has done a great job attracting some of the top investors there are. I mean, you guys have people such as Kevin Durant, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey. How did you go about attracting that top talent? Well, you know, there's a there's a few different uh, principles to, to keep in mind, I think, when, when you're trying to raise capital for a business. One is that you can always find a new investor faster than you can convince an old investor uh, or convince someone who's been on the fence. So when I, whenever I meet with entrepreneurs and they're asking me how to fundraise, uh, I just tell them to keep moving. You know, keep meeting, keep meeting people and good things are going to happen. What, what, what the opposite tends to happen for entrepreneurs where they meet one or two or three people or, or three different funds and they get interest from one or two of them. And so they just spend all their time with those two funds. And what happens is it you know draws out the process and uh, and then the deal isn't competitive. And so you're and, and then you realize, oh, they actually weren't as interested as, as they said they were. So that one of the principles I just buy is just, you know, keep meeting people. Um, you know, look for people who have a like-minded vision for the company, right? Don't don't try to uh, take on capital from people who have a different vision from from uh, the CEO or from the founder. I think that can be um, risky. And you know, in the case of some of the people that that you mentioned, uh, yeah, we have been fortunate to have great investors. And I, I think a lot of it comes back to. Uh, you know, just alignment from from uh, the vision standpoint. And then also, in our case, it's very easy to try our product. You know, it's not like we're some defense cloud software that, you know, has has uh, doesn't have a consumer application. So a lot of uh, a lot of investors we have originally started as whoop users, and they said, "Hey, this thing's great." Uh, so that that also helps. No, that certainly does. I loved your principle of keep moving. Uh, a framework I live by is momentum breeds momentum. And, and you're right, it's a compounding effect. You, you keep having totally, those conversations, yeah. keep moving forward there. You mentioned you were at the Harvard, what was it, the Harvard Accelerator when you first launched this business? Yeah, the Harvard Innovation Lab. The Harvard Innovation yeah. Lab. So so what is that like? How do you go from this idea of this potential business to absolutely diving all in and launching it? Well, you know, I think that, the Harvard Innovation Lab was very uh, timely in that it was really just getting started around when uh, I graduated. So this was 2012. And I had committed by the fall of that year to start Whoop. I was, so that's fall, actually, excuse me, fall of 2011, I was convinced that I was going to start this company. Uh, and so, you know, the whole school year, I was really doing research and trying to meet smart people. And then, uh, and then I discovered that the Harvard Innovation Lab was this like free office space for Harvard students where uh, you could work on ideas. And uh, and so we we convinced the Harvard Innovation Lab to let us work there that summer. 
And we said that we were going to be moving ultimately to New York at the end of the summer. Now, I grew up uh, I grew up in New York. I grew up on Long Island, spent a lot of time in Manhattan. I'd done some internships there. I felt like I knew a lot of people in Manhattan. So I wanted to, to build Whoop out of Manhattan. And what what we discovered very quickly was that working out of the Harvard Innovation Lab was actually perfect because we had a bunch of athletes uh, next door at the Harvard Stadium where we could go test stuff on them. We had a bunch of professors at the school who we could gather research from. And uh, and we could also get students to work part-time with us or as interns and, uh, and who were ultimately, you know, um, comfortable working for, for, you know, low wages because they wanted to have a summer job or something like that. So, uh, it, it ended up being this perfect place. Now, what, what I realized is that by the end of our summer, we actually really weren't supposed to be in the Harvard innovation lab because it was mostly for current students. And what's funny is that I had graduated, uh, Aurelian who I mentioned had graduated and John, uh, our CTO, he uh, was actually dropping out of Harvard to pursue Whoop. So it was like a, a perfect storm of not being what the iLab was really looking for. But because we were there already and because we were very uh, you know, eager, so to speak, to be working out of the iLab, uh, they, they ultimately let us stay there. And by the time we graduated from the iLab, uh, and by graduate, I mean we raised enough capital to go get our own office, I think we were the largest team there and we had maybe uh, 18, 18 full-time employees working out of the Harvard Innovation Lab. So it was uh, it was a great journey. We ended up there for 18 months. Um, I think that the whole the whole staff there uh, has a great energy and it's cool because you, you meet other entrepreneurs too. How do you view obstacles, especially early on there? I mean, you could have viewed not having that office space. You guys should have been forced out. How, how do you conquer those obstacles? Well, you know, I think that you have to first, first really define what is uh, what is the obstacle. Like, what is this thing you need to overcome, and and then just give yourself options. Uh, you want to have a lot of different optionality, and uh, and then the the other piece is, you know, you have to have a lot of uh, a lot of belief in the in those different options. I, I like to say with startups. Um, you know, you really need to have cash and belief. And if you have those two <laughs> things, you can kind of keep going forever. And short of one, you want to have a lot of the other. So if you're, <laughs> if you're low on cash, you really need a lot of belief. And, and if you don't have a lot of belief, you're going to need some runway. So you better have a lot of cash. And, uh, yeah. And so, you know, I think give yourself options. Uh, at least that's what I've tried to do for the business. And by the way, giving yourself options in turn makes obstacles seem easier to overcome. So uh, what's an obstacle? Okay, we're running out of money in three months. Well, okay, uh, I'm going to talk to our existing investors and see if they want to put in more capital. I'm going to talk to new investors and try to get them to, to put down a term sheet. I'm going to talk to uh, banks to see if they'll loan us money. I'm going to look at different customers that may want to buy the product uh, and pay up front and have it be shipped later in large bulk orders. Okay, I've now given myself five different scenarios where I can generate cash faster um, or, or put new cash into the business. And then you're chasing each one of those. And within each one of those scenarios, you've got, you know, four or five different different paths as well. You know, you've got five different existing investors, five different new investors, five different customers, right? Uh, five different banks. And, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, it doesn't look so bleak anymore. Yeah, this is really coming full circle, seeing about your your principle of keep moving and, and how that relates to these options decision and the optionality. A decision I always try to do is, is when being forced between two decisions, go with the one that gives you more options there. How do you decide or is there a group you go to when making very difficult decisions, whether that be in the business or personally? I think one thing you have to learn as an entrepreneur is uh is, is not just to listen to people, but it's when to listen to who, right? Because you're going to have all these different challenges come up in your business and, uh, and an advisor or an investor or even a, a member of the managing team, management team of your company, you know, they may, uh, they may have been great for solving one problem 
uh, but actually could give you pretty lousy advice for another. And so I think being, uh, you know, selective about how you uh, analyze um, information is really important. You know, making sure that you're basing you're basing a decision on the right set of information or even the right set of advice. So that to me has been, I would say, probably one of the most important things. The other thing that just took a long time for me to to get uh, good at is this balance between hearing what someone is saying and actually listening to it and and doing it. And when I was first starting Whoop, there were just so many people that told me I was going to fail that it, you know, I found myself sort of blocking, blocking feedback out, uh, like largely blocking it out. And, you know, there was probably decent advice that was given to me, you know, in those, in those early years that I may have even just ignored because I had built up this, this survival system, which was just like, I'm not going to listen to people who tell me to keep doing all these different things. And now today it's, it's something where, uh, I actually welcome, you know, I welcome dissenting points of view or I welcome, uh, people who have an alternative point of view and I try to really hear their point of view, um, and, and sort of have this comfort that I don't necessarily have to do what they're saying. Uh, but I, I should internalize what they're saying. And I think that's another balance that you try to find as an entrepreneur, because, you know, if you if you internalize too much negativity or too much of people telling you you're going to fail, you actually will fail. Like you have to have this belief system. Uh, but as you get more successful in the journey, I think, you know, being able to identify uh, the feedback that that you need is critical. Yeah, it's always an interesting balance there. I'm wondering, is there any advice that you actually did welcome you've implemented and has really changed the business? You know, there's there's inevitably so much advice that's changed the business. I think one thing that uh, I'm proud of is I've been able to surround myself with really brilliant people. I have a very talented management team, I have 50 brilliant employees across all kinds of different disciplines. And uh, and Whoop is just a super dynamic environment. You know, in, in the same office, you may find someone who uh, designed a bulletproof vest for the CIA and, uh, separately, you know, built three iOS apps in his free time and separately, uh, you know, launched uh, an enormous global, uh, marketing engine. Like those are all three different people at whoop. Um, and yet, you know, they, they all, you know, offer completely different skill sets for the technology we're building and I get to interact with them every day. So I find that very humbling and uh and exciting it's exhilarating you know to be around people that have such uh diverse but also deep skill sets right in 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 different areas and so inevitably the i think the collision of all these different skills uh you know has a huge impact on on the business and and how i run it will when you're adding or building to the whoop team what are you looking for specifically is it an unbelievable background from someone? Is it this diverse set of skills they possess? Anything that really stands out to you when meeting new people and trying to bring them onto the team? It's a great question. The two characteristics that I really look for in everyone that I interview, and uh, and I almost I think I tell almost everyone I interview this, is I look for people who have a deep expertise in a particular area and a high degree of humility. And the reason that's such a powerful combination is in an environment that's small like Whoop, uh, but has a big, big ambition, you may have single individuals who represent a whole department, right? You may be in a meeting, for example, where you need to figure out how does uh, the hardware send data to the iOS app via, via Bluetooth. And, you know, what's going to happen is in that meeting, there's going to be a product manager, there's going to be an iOS engineer, there's going to be a marketer, uh, there's going to be a signal processing engineer, and maybe even a designer. And they're going to come into the meeting with their own point of view, and there's going to be this natural collision of ideas, right? And uh, and what you want to have happen is for the group as a whole to come out uh, with the best idea for the company, not who came up with the best idea. And I think that's where the the humility comes in. And, uh, 
And I've just seen now where if you can create an environment that uh, fosters, you know, what I like to call an idea meritocracy, where the best ideas win, uh, then you also in turn uh, create a flatter hierarchy because people of any level within the organization feel comfortable challenging one another and uh, and getting more feedback on specific initiatives for one another. And, uh, and it's more efficient for the business too, because if I'm a, uh, a director of blank and I need to speak to a VP of blank about something, I don't have to go to my VP and then he has to go to that VP to try to coordinate it. I can just go directly to this person because I'm in an environment where I feel comfortable talking to people and challenging people. And I think, you know, I think that then in turn creates a culture that's, that's more transparent and, uh, and, and high energy because everyone feels like they're, they're playing a, a, you know, a big role in the success of the organization. When you're hiring, you're looking for deep expertise and a high degree of humility. It's an interesting framework, one I believe in as well. You also mentioned idea meritocracy. How did you develop this framework? I have to think about someone such as Ray Dalio who runs Bridgewater. Did you pull different principles from him? Yeah, I mean, I've read I've read the the Dalio principles. I think that I think it's it, like first of all, I think it's good to have principles. So I respect uh, I respect a lot of uh, a lot of just the exercise of thinking about this. And I, in my opinion, Dalio's operation is uh, I think too um, too extreme or too ruthless when it comes to a feedback loop. Uh, I agree with the idea of, I mean, I 100% agree with the idea of an idea of meritocracy, uh, but I don't think you need to necessarily make people cry in the process of achieving that or, or you know, make people feel like they don't um, have any merit if, uh, if their idea isn't the best. And so, you know, I only think that, that that specific principle probably works in a certain you know, in a certain environment, and clearly he's been able to to be very successful with it. I think for Whoop, uh, you know, we try to have a little bit more empathy for each other's challenges, and uh, and I and I think empathy again is a good um, is a good guiding force as well for anyone within an organization. Yeah, no, this is your company, your people. I truly do believe in empathy and the value that that instills in a company. So it's cool to hear you talk about that. I am interested in the early days of Whoop. What did the initial product idea look like and, and how different is that from today? You know, the actual hardware uh, looked very different from a prototype standpoint um, because if you just think about the goal of any business is to de-risk or the goal of any startup is to de-risk certain challenges um, along the way till ultimately you have a successful company, the first thing that we really had to de-risk was could we build hardware that could monitor what uh, I thought we needed to be able to monitor in order to understand things like strain and recovery and sleep. And so the first, really the first thing that we had to be able to prove was that we could build hardware that could measure heart rate and heart rate variability as accurately as a heart rate chest strap and electrocardiogram. So a lot of our focus was just on solving that specific problem. And we ultimately built hardware that, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a box about twice the size of my head. It had an enormous cord that came off of it that then connected to a very large, clunky uh, plastic band that you would wrap around your, your wrist. And then even off of the box, there was like a big fat USB drive to, to then connect into uh, a computer. And so you can picture this crazy apparatus. Uh, that was really the first prototype that we had that could, could accurately measure heart rate and heart rate variability. And by the way, that was the right thing for us to build because it proved that we had the algorithms and, and by the way, we had a team that, that could develop this uh, cutting edge technology. And from there, uh, you know, the next challenge was, okay, how do, you, how do you put this in an attractive form factor? How do you uh, manufacture it at scale? Those become the next challenges. Uh, but but we were able to, you know, effectively prove that uh, we were capable of uh, we were capable of building this 
this technology in a, in a prototype form. And I think there's, you know, there's a huge gap between a prototype and a final product. That's something that you learn, especially if you're building hardware. Um, but, but I would say that one advantage we had is we actually didn't stray that much from the early days, even till today on what, uh, on what we were trying to monitor. I mean, that paper I wrote, uh, at Harvard was literally titled, um, uh, the feedback tool, how to measure, uh, strain recovery and sleep. And sure enough today, like that's, those are the three main things that we show in the app. So I think we, we had an advantage in that we were very focused from day one on something and we didn't really veer too far off from that. You know, startups often talk about the advantage of pivoting along the way and, you know, going left and then going right. And I'm generally skeptical of that because it just means that you were wrong about something that you needed to change course on. If the goal is ultimately to be right, the sooner you can be right, the better. Very insightful advice there. You mentioned the paper you wrote at Harvard. Have you ever published that? No, I haven't. I'd be so interested to read that right now. I, I have to dust that off. Yeah, right. You guys <laughs> have gotten some tremendous insights from some of the best athletes in the world, guys like LeBron James, Michael Phelps. I don't know how much data is public, but what's one of the most impressive things you've seen out of an athlete from the data you've compiled? Anything come to mind for you? Well, you know, it's been amazing working with some of these high performers um, and, you know, Olympians and uh, professional athletes across every sports league. Uh, I've been really impressed by uh, Navy SEALs. I mean, those guys are amazing. Uh, what they're able to do to their bodies. We just, uh, I'll give you one example. We we uh, supported a charity called the SEAL Future Fund, which raises money for veteran Navy SEALs. And uh, there was a competition with three uh, former Navy SEALs where they um, jumped out of a plane. So they skydived uh, 14,000 feet, uh, landed in the water, uh, swam three miles, uh, with 20 pound equipment on them and then got to shore, put on 25 pound metal plates and ran a hundred miles. And so we got to see all of that on whoop and, you know, it's just insane what the body's capable of, um, taking on. And it's incredible if you have a mindset like, you know, the Navy SEALs have have just a clear mindset that they can push through anything. Uh, it's amazing what, you, you know, how far you can take your body. And so looking at that data was was pretty incredible, just the amount of exertion they put on their bodies. But then also the impressive thing was how quickly they were able to recover from it. You know, you'd expect, like I ran the Boston Marathon and I had a red recovery for two days after these guys did that crazy event and I think they only had a red recovery for one day and then they were, you know, back up. <laughs> so it just shows you, uh, you know, resiliency and fitness, like those things come through in the data. No, that's so interesting. And anyone who wants to dive deeper on the mindset of the SEALs, we've had on three recently, Brennan Webb, Brent Gleason, and Work Denver. You guys can check back the episodes for that one. Will, this has been absolutely fascinating. One final thing, I'm curious, what's next for Whoop? Obviously, you guys are at the cutting edge of technology and wearables. Where are you trying to go next? Well, a lot of a lot of it for us is continuing to grow and own in this in this lane of human performance. I think everything we can do to understand you and help you optimize whatever you consider performance. That's our lane. And so it's it's getting people to sleep longer, uh, recover faster, uh, and be able to put more stress on their bodies too because that makes them fitter and more functional people. So it's just driving down those lanes. I think that we will see more of a convergence between our professional population and our consumer population. Uh, where you're able to interact with other professional athletes on Whoop and look at their data and understand your body through the lens of, you know, super top performers. Uh, so I'm very excited about the community aspect of of Whoop, and uh, and then also like we've got a lot of new analytics and new features coming out over uh, over the coming months. So it's I think a good time to get on the platform, and it's uh, you know it's such a pleasure for me to see 
the growth to this community and, and, you know, I love all of our users. No, it's been so fun hearing your story, your entrepreneurial journey, what Whoop is currently doing. You guys have a big mission, unlock human performance. I can't wait to see you guys continue to stay connected with the end consumer. For the listeners who want to stay connected with you, where should they head? Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Will Ahmed. And uh, I think my email's on there as well. And uh, yeah, I'm always happy to answer questions about Whoop or about this podcast. And, uh, and you know, if you're, if you're trying to find Whoop, uh, we're just at whoop.com, W-H-O-O-P.com. Uh, we're running some interesting promotions right now for the holidays. And uh, it's, it's always a good time, I think, to get on the platform. And let's plug your new podcast. You guys just launched last week. You did a, an interview with former NBA commissioner, David Stern. I listened to that uh, the other day. Absolutely loved it. Where can they find that? Oh, yeah, great. Well, thank, thanks for listening. So uh, we just launched uh, the Whoop podcast. The goal is to, to dig deeper with a lot of different industry experts uh, across performance, whether they're in sports, uh, you know, they're professional athletes. Uh, we have uh, different professors, uh, scientists uh, on the podcast. I've interviewed executives. I've interviewed Navy SEALs. So it's a really, really interesting, diverse group of people. And we're launching um, a, a new podcast will come out every week. We launched our first one last week with David Stern. We have a new one coming out uh, today, actually. I mean, we're shooting this on Wednesday. We're, 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 we've got a new one coming out today with uh, Kevin Kip Parker, who I like to call is the mad scientist at Harvard. He oversees a lot of the engineering department and has a lot of cool different uh cool different labs and really cool different stories on things that um, he's creating. So uh, so definitely check that out. And, and you can also find the link to the Whoop podcast uh, at whoop.com. Yep. And we'll have that in the show notes. Will Ahmed, CEO of Whoop. I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Thank you, Sean. Real pleasure. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that your physical fitness is one of the most important aspects of your life. So why do you keep wearing those old workout shorts that are falling apart? Or even worse, when you're at the gym and something smells a little ripe? If that's the case, it's time to turn in those old shorts for a new pair of 10,000 shorts. 10,000 makes it super simple to purchase your new favorite workout apparel. My new favorite short is their distance short, which is super comfortable, lightweight, and perfect for all of my fitness goals. I can say without a doubt that 10,000 shorts are the most comfortable workout shorts I have ever worn. Like myself, 10,000 is obsessed with nailing the fit with the highest quality materials and construction. For the listeners of What Got You There, 10,000 is offering 20% off your first order of shorts. Yes, that's 20% off. When you check out, make sure you request their one-in-one-out kit. They do this super cool thing when you can send in your old gear you have for recycling and you'll get 10% off your next order. Head to www.10,000.cc forward slash WGYT to receive 20% off your order. And if for some reason you don't love them, they have your back with free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns. A few months ago, my body was experiencing a ton of pain, and that's when my friend and former podcast guest, Noah Olson, turned me on to Pure Spectrum CBD. Their CBD products have been tremendous in relieving a lot of the pain in my body. Their products are pure because everything they make is tested every time for quality, consistency, and efficiency. They're 100% organic, third-party tested. There's a 100% guarantee, and they're THC-free. If you want to receive 10% off the entire site, head to PureSpectrumCBD.com and enter code WGYT. That's 10% off the entire website at PureSpectrumCBD.com with code WGYT. For the What Got You There listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. 
What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.